ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the East Go to 11. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell, your host. Greg Dutcher sitting across from me. And we also have Steve Hartland joining us again today. Um, special guest is going to be Tom Schreiner. We're going to get to him in uh, just a moment for the bio. Um, so, Greg, your prediction about the Ravens uh, yes. was true, but a little backwards. It was. I was right in the main thing, wrong in the little thing. I said, see, we recorded our last uh, podcast, the one we did this past week, uh, about John Piper and uh, trends in uh, the Reformed movement. Uh, and we recorded that two weeks earlier. Remember, Steve, we had a double podcast. So I, I went gutsy. I went prophetic and said, this is where the Ravens are today. I said they would be one and four because they beat the Browns and lost to the Steelers. They actually beat the Steelers and lost to the Browns. So I was right about the number, wrong about the particulars. But the good thing is we lost again yesterday, <laughs> and we're now 1-5, and five, and I'll tell you what I'm excited about. My hope is that the Ravens continue to phone it in, we end the season 1-15, and 15, and we pick first or second in the draft. <laughs> so my, my mind is already on 2016. There is no chance we can do anything at this point. And I'm not depressed anymore because uh, Maryland basketball starts up, and that might be our last chance for a winning team. You guys not being sports fans, I'm jealous. <laughs> oh, I'm sports fans, just different sports. Yeah, yeah. Steve is our you're, uh, our, you're our motorcycle dude. Oh, but I really like bicycle racing, so Tour de France and oh, all the you do like spring that. classics over in Europe. Yeah. And I'm, I'm big into downhill ski racing in the winter, so oh, yeah. those are kind of my sports that's, that's check out. That's there. cool. That's, uh, let me show my knowledge of that. Bodie Miller. Yeah, he's the man. Okay, that's all I know. He's been the man. He's <laughs> yeah. kind of aging out now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. That's but he's been amazing. Yeah, I know. He, he kind of brought a hipness to the sport, right, mm-hmm. Steve? Very cool. So that's all I got on Ravens. Uh, got. I'm doing all right, though. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Um, and our special guest, Dr. Tom Schreiner. Tom, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be with you. Well, we really appreciate you having us on. Give us a little bit of information about yourself, um, just kind of background in um, education, training, friends, family, all that fun stuff. Uh, I, I became a Christian when I was uh, 17 years old. Um, I went to a small school in Oregon undergrad, Western Oregon University. Then for my Master of Divinity and THM, I went to Western Baptist Seminary in Portland, Oregon. I'm an Oregonian. And for my PhD, I went to Fuller Seminary. Then in 1983 to 1986, I taught at a school in Southern California called Azusa Pacific University. Mm -hmm. 1986 to 19. 97, I taught at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I've been at Southern Seminary since 1997, and for the last 17 years, I've also been a preaching pastor at our church, uh, which is called Clifton Baptist Church. We have, I'm married, we have four children and six grandchildren and one more on the way oh congratulations how nice yeah thank you that's great and so um clearly you have a very uh distinguished uh teaching and preaching career and so we really want to talk to you today about um some new testament subjects Uh, i'm gonna let greg go ahead and lead us off um, I know he's got some questions for you, and we'll just kind of go around the table, and uh, I'll finish us up. So, great. Nathan, uh, since since our listeners can't see what's going on here, how come you were laughing at me 
comparing my pedigree with uh, Tom <laughs> as he was sharing his. Bio. Are you saying that my bio is less impressive than Tom Schreiner's? I mean, come on. I mean, I have logged more Greg. hours on Gilligan's Island reruns than any pastor I know. Greg, let's just say there's a reason we've never gone over your bio. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. This, this is our 52nd episode of And Nathan, nor anyone that's ever been a guest, has shown any interest in my bio. You steered the thing right around that, huh? <laughs> that's wow. a good podcast host right there. Yes, that is. That is. He, he knows how to avoid pitfalls, so that's... That's, uh, that's good. Um, well, as I've told uh, you know, so many people in our church as well, I feel like men that I quote when I'm preaching, I, I tend to quote a lot of commentators, mainly because I think they say things the way I want to say them and lack the vocabulary to do so. And uh, Tom, I have quoted you several times. Uh, I went through Romans several years ago, and you were one of my go-to guys. I went through First Peter just in the last few months. And you were a go-to guy. So I say, I feel like I have all these friends, some living, some dead, you know, Spurgeon and others. Uh, and I've never met any of them, uh, or I don't usually get the chance. We had Dr. John Frame on here a few months back, and uh, that was a real honor. So I just, you know, I, I want to say, uh, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm not going to deny it to actually talk to you. So um, we've got a lot of questions for you, and uh, I feel like I'm just sort of at the, the well, ready to take whatever I can get. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about is the influence of uh, N.T. Wright. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners know about him. Been a very influential uh, New Testament scholar. I have a number of friends that have now, uh, and this is anecdotal, but I think it will illustrate what I'm saying, have now somewhat removed themselves from traditional yeah. evangelical circles yeah. Because of the influence of N.T. Wright. Yeah. And I've got some friends telling me, Greg, the, the church botched justification by faith. They, they, they brought a 17th, 16th century mindset, a legal mindset, um, an accounting mindset on justification, um, you know, the whole imputation of Christ's righteousness. That's not at all what Paul was talking about. He had a very different message. Um, so I've got friends that are sharing this with me, some who were one who was a pastor who is no longer a pastor. And I uh, would love to get your thought on N.T. Wright and his influence. And if I can ask you first to maybe summarize the issue a little bit for some of our listeners uh, that are hearing this for the first time. Sure, sure. Well, I, I think I'd want to say first that something about N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is enormously gifted. He's a, he's a great writer, a, 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 an, a, an engaging speaker. Yes. He, he, I, I, he's on our side. He's our friend. He's an evangelical. He, he does a marvelous job of putting together the scriptures. He, he thinks, he thinks in terms of the big picture. Mm-hmm. And that's that's enormously helpful, and so many biblical scholars just do their little piece, and they don't they don't think of the whole, and 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 Wright thinks of the whole, and and I think that's actually his greatest contribution. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to justification, we have what the new perspective on Paul 
that's what it's called. Is it so new anymore? Because it really started in the 70s, late 70s. But the new perspective on Paul, Sanders, Don, and others uh, argues that we we have fundamentally misunderstood uh, the law and justification and, and righteousness. So a person like Wright would say that justification is is more about ecclesiology more about being members of the church mm-hmm. that's what i mean by ecclesiology it's more about ecclesiology than it is about soteriology mm-hmm. which, by which i mean it's more about being a church member a covenant member in the church than it is about salvation mm-hmm. that's soteriology and and then 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 he would he would go on to say things like the imputation of of Christ's righteousness is nowhere taught in in the scripture. It isn't it isn't actually a Pauline category. Mm-hmm. Now there's a lot of other dimensions to his view as well, but but I would say that. When you actually look at the scriptures, I, I, I think he has it backwards. I think I think you can show, looking in, at the context of scripture, that that justification it, it's put together with salvation, with being redeemed, with uh, having sins forgiven. So, honestly, I think it's very clear that justification has to do more with salvation than with being a member of the church. There are implications for church membership. Mm-hmm. And and I think he's right on that. But justification isn't so much about uh, uh, our horizontal relationships with one another, but our vertical relationship with God. So it's a matter of exegesis, but I think when you actually look at the text, I, I don't think his claim is borne out there. Now, when it comes to imputation, he he says things like a judge a judge can't give his righteousness to the defendant. That doesn't happen in courtrooms. Mm-hmm. And my reply to that is, that's exactly right. That doesn't happen in human courtrooms. But the scriptures teach us that the analogy of human courtrooms isn't exact. In other words, this is the most unusual courtroom in the world mm-hmm. where where God, the judge, actually gives his righteousness to the defendant. That right is correct. That doesn't happen in human courtrooms, but it, do, but it does happen. Thank the Lord. It happens in the divine courtroom. And, and, and God gives his righteousness to us when we're united to Jesus Christ. I think that's clear in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Mm-hmm. Um, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I think that's clear in Romans 5, 12 through 19. We, we're, we're, we're in Adam or in Christ, and when we're in Christ, we have all of Christ. You know, I, th- I think Luther put it very well. When, we're, when we become a believer, as believers, we're married to Christ, and when we're married to Christ, when we're united with Christ, all he is is ours. Yes. And, and that includes his righteousness. So, yes, we're forgiven of our sins, but all of Christ is ours. So also his, the life he lived, the righteousness he has is given to us. 
I mean, naturally, I, I ha- I'm not explaining here. We don't have time probably to, to work it out exegetically because that's a long discussion. Sure, yeah. sure, but, yes, yes. But that's, but that's where I think he, he goes astray. I had a conversation with him about this in person in Atlanta in 2010. Mm-hmm. He's a very warm, engaging person. I, I like Tom very much, I, but, but I think he goes astray here. Yes, and and I wanted to ask you, how should I think you've been very gracious because you've and I love how you said Tom Wright is one of us. Uh, he, although his teaching on the issue of justification um, is uh, you know very very concerning, uh, what is your sense, Tom, of uh, N.T. Wright's? And I I might be asking you an unfair question. Tell me if I am. What is his understanding of what we would typically call as evangelicals the salvation message? Or would he not even necessarily use those terms? Yeah, I I think he'd say, I'm not sure here, I think he'd say the salvation message we preach is true. Mm -hmm. I I mean, he'll say, of, of course we're not justified by our works in the way the reformers said, but he'll often say, but that's not what Paul's fundamentally talking about mm-hmm. so um I, I don't think he'd disagree but i like i don't know if some of you you heard or read kevin van hooser's little talk where he evaluates right and right was there and and van hooser says when the philippian jailers said what must i do to be saved van hooser remarked that's not the wrong question mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes right talks as if that's the wrong question yeah, interesting. So, and that's and but but when you ask him, well, is, is it is it right to say that we're not justified by our works but by faith in Jesus Christ? He'll say, well, of of course that's right, uh, but it's not it's not the center. So it's a it's a matter of how important it is, and and here I agree with the reformers; it's a vital importance. Right, right. Tom, this is Steve. Um, so, so I'm wondering, and some of our hearers might be wondering, if a, uh, a pastor of a church and the church governing body and a whole church uh, uh, embraces this new perspective on Paul, what difference will that make in their church? What will look different, feel different, sound different? How will the average visitor to the church notice something, or will they? Can you speak to that, please? Well, that's a great question, Steve. I I know of a situation, first of all, I know of a situation where a senior pastor and associate differed on this. The associate uh, really uh, embraced Wright's views. And at least the senior pastor, who's a friend of mine, he he felt that the the gospel message became different from the associate. And they they actually had to part ways. Hmm. And I haven't actually seen it worked out, but I would suspect, I mean, I think of our particular church, we have a great emphasis on on the gospel, something we want to regularly talk about, in not, a, not in every dimension of it, but in our services Sunday morning. And I think Wright, Wright's vision of the gospel and our vision of the gospel would differ, and so I think the centrality of the gospel— in, in the preaching and teaching of the church would be would be lessened. He now Tom and I have disagreed on this through email, but he Tom Tom did a series of sermons in England in a small town. I can't remember the 
the name of it. He did a, a week-long series during Easter week. And I, I reviewed his the book. I, I can't re- remember the name of the book now, but I reviewed the book. And I in my review, I said, I don't think he ever proclaimed the gospel that whole week clearly for mm-hmm. unbelievers mm-hmm. on how to how to how to be saved and uh i, I and i said that that's something he should have pro- proclaimed he, right. he talked a lot about god's comfort to those who are suffering and such and so i suspect i suspect that's where the difference would lie i i, I think that's a huge hole so you have a, you have a week of messages, and it's Easter, and you never clearly proclaim you're you're a sinner. You've fallen short of God's standards. God has provided a way of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you need to trust in Him to be saved. At least in those sermons, Tom never said that clearly, Interesting. Interesting. and so I. I, I suspect that's the way it manifests itself, and um, and and what's the crying need in England? Of course, it's for churches to be strong, but there's also a crying need for evangelism. Yes, yeah. um, mo- most I, I think almost all would agree most are not saved, and uh, we lose that urgency to proclaim the gospel. That that's a problem. So I can't speak definitively on this because. You know, I haven't seen it really worked out in a church firsthand, but that's my suspicion. Interesting. Tom, this is Steve again. So I have some, uh, let me just call them extended family friends who uh, who have embraced the new perspective on Paul. Uh, at the same time, they've become uh, very... Uh, like the extreme form of pedo baptist it's almost like uh, pedo covenant children. And if long, the important thing is, are the children members of the church? Are they covenant children? Not have they personally embraced Christ and repented of their sins? And they are presently looking for a church that they like and having a very hard time finding one anywhere in the entire USA, frankly. <laughs> they're looking everywhere. And, and what they really want to find is uh, an Anglican church. They found one they kind of like. And its doctrine is rather corrupt. But if it can just be like this historic, traditional Anglican church where they can be members and their kids can be members and they seem to be happy, does that fit in with some of what you've seen as a result of the new perspective on Paul? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that almost sounds more like federal vision to me. Are you familiar with the federal vision? Yes. Uh, But but I do wonder if a certain... I mean, I have wondered what's right. I mean, we, we haven't sat down and talked about these sort of things. But if the view of infant baptism that's embraced would also play into this. And, uh, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm a Baptist, but I think there's a great danger there of uh, a, a sort of presumptive regeneration in yes. baptism. Yes. Right. And, and, and therefore, I mean, this has always been the Baptist concern that the church begins to be filled with unregenerate people. Yes. Um, and, 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 and I think, of course, that can be a problem in Baptist circles anyway, because <laughs> as, as, as anyone knows who knows Baptist life, we can, we can ex- accept very easily children into our fellowship without very much uh, 
evidence of uh, salvation. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, that's a complicated issue on a number of levels, but, but, I, but I would trade our problems practically working it out with, with uh, the presumptive regeneration view any day. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, uh, it's, it's interesting. I wanted to ask, in light of that, since N.T. Wright is an Anglican, do you know, Tom, or did any of the sort of better-known robust gospel-centered Anglicans, I think of a J.I. Packer or the late John Stott. I, I've looked for this online. Did they ever interact with uh, N.T. Wright on, on these issues? Not that I know of. Interesting. Not that I know of. I haven't, I haven't seen any interaction on that. Yes, because I, I would think that um, you know, there is an option for those, Steve, that, that are drawn to the Anglican form of worship, but it sounds to me like your friends are also equally drawn, if not more drawn, to, to Wright's theology yes. of the new perspective. And, uh, and and just one other thing. Again, I'm thinking of people that are listening in, maybe trying to keep up with this a little bit. Um, am I right on this, Tom, that, you know, because there are so many passages, you know, and obviously Christians are, you know, uh, they know Ephesians 2.8, you know, uh, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. I mean, all these passages in Romans 4, not of works, not of works. Um N.T. Wright, in, uh, in particular, New Perspective in general, typically doesn't see those works, am I right on this, as works to get right with God, but as something else. Could you elaborate on that a bit? More like works to stay right with the community? Yeah, and, uh, you know... I- well, yeah, I mean, Wright, Wright would say that the, the works, typically works and especially works of law, they refer to the boundary markers, the identity badges of being Jewish, right. such as circumcision, Sabbath, food laws that, that separate, that mark off Jews from Gentiles. So, uh, so the, the, the fundamental problem isn't works righteousness that Paul is disagreeing with, but, but exclusivism, ethnocentrism. Yes. Uh, and, and so... Yeah, that I, I don't. I don't think that's compelling. Uh, I, I think it's clear that in Romans four, for example, Paul has in mind works in general, especially when he's talking about Abraham and David. Yes, mm. but but the interesting thing is it plays into you know with right rejecting imputation. Then he also emphasizes we must that our our final justification is based on good works. Right, and and. That makes people very nervous, and I think rightly so, because first of all, he rejects imputation, and then he says our final salvation is based on good works. Well, well, now that produces anxiety over whether those good works are sufficient. Right. Now, right, right, and I are. I, I, I think he he's on to something that good works are necessary, mm-hmm. but th- we have to be very careful here. Good works are necessary, I think, at the final judgment. But I would argue that they're necessary fruit and evidence, and the word basis sounds like the works are the fu- the foundation of our being right with God, and and I think that's dangerous. Yes, mm. yeah. So is, is there a sense of uh, assurance? That's that's my concern, uh, you know, uh, pastorally. Uh, we talk exactly. to so many people that are struggling with assurance. Exactly. And, and I brought that up with right in Atlanta, and he said something like, people in England don't struggle with that. <laughs> ah, wow. I, wow. I, I, don't, I don't. I mean, of course, it was a very quick 
conversation. I wish we could have lingered on that more. I don't. I don't believe that. No. I don't think. I. I, th- I think people are people. Yes, human nature. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. So. I mean, I, I, I talked to the number of uh, – I talked to a mother a few years ago uh, in our church who was your sort of typical – she would admit suburban soccer mom. And she had read – this ties into last week's podcast, guys. She had read David Platt's Radical and was struggling with assurance of her salvation mm-hmm. as a result of reading mm-hmm. that book. And I'm not, I'm not blaming that on Platt. We, we covered that last week. But there was a sense in which I saw a very sincere woman – who I believe genuinely loves the Lord, who is like a lot of young mothers, tired, exhausted, yeah, struggling. struggling, is barely having time to get enough sleep, let alone spend quality time in a devotional, let alone spend you know her time investing in a child in Ethiopia who doesn't have the benefits, etc. She was very torn up, and it was such a joy for me to be able to take her to Romans 4, to be able to take her to... Galatians 5 and the, the whole notion of the spirit in, in, uh, at work in us. And I tried to ask her, I said to this woman, paint for me the kind of woman that you want to be, the kind of mother, the kind of wife, uh, the, just the kind of woman before God, a daughter of God. And she painted a woman that was fully devoted, that was completely sold out to Christ. And I asked her, where do you think that came from? Hmm. Yeah, where, where, I said, do you think you ever would have had that idea in your heart prior to becoming a believer? And she said, well, I suppose not. And I tried to encourage her. That's the Holy Spirit in her. And yes, there is genuine conviction. There is a sense of I'm not measuring up. That's always what we experience. Um, but it, to me, it, to go the NT right position, and this is what I've tried to talk about with my ex-pastor friend, um, I have no means to impart assurance to the struggling believer. So it, that seemed to resonate with you as well, Tom. I noticed as soon as we mentioned assurance, you, know, you, you, you really rose up on that issue. And I... Is that pastorally, maybe not exegetically, pastorally um, a worthy battleground? Yeah, I, I, I'd say exegetically and pastorally. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting features of the new perspective is they say there's no polemic, there's no argument against works righteousness, against trusting in your works. There's virtually no polemic against that in, in, in the scriptures. Wow. And... And I, and and I, I I think that so for example, you know this this comes from Sanders, but Wright embraces it. The Jews had no struggle with legalism. That's a that's an imposition. That's a false imposition on the sources. Right. But now I think of course, Jew the Jews and the Pharisees have sometimes been caricatured, and and the legalism has been overemphasized. Mm-hmm. But but I want to say. Of course, the Jews struggled with legalism because, uh, first of all, that's what the sources say. We'd have to talk about that. But secondly, I want to say that's a fundamental human problem because the fundamental we know ourselves. What's our fundamental problem? We're we're proud. We're proud. That's that's what that's what C.S. Lewis said in that fabulous chapter in Mere Christianity. What's the great sin? The great sin is pride. Yes, and yet. I think the new perspectivists have a blind spot here because they say, well, you know, the Jews didn't really struggle with that. And I, th- I think that's completely off base. So it, it all ties into what we're talking about in terms of assurance. What are we, what are we trusting in? And um, I, I don't see any answer coming from right on, on these 
on these matters. Although, again, see, if you say to him, what he'd say, that's right, you ought not to trust in your own righteousness, and you, you need to be assured. And then he'd say, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Right, right. That, that, so he doesn't, he doesn't disagree with us. He just says, oh, oh, oh of course, of course. I um, see, I see. But I, but I think it's more front and center. Yes. You know, the, and I point to the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. I mean, clearly the Pharisee there is trusting in. I mean, Luke tells us, in, right, that he's, that he's righteous. Yes. He trusted in himself that he was righteous. He was exalting himself, and he was exalting himself over what he did, you yes. know, yeah. over against the tax collector. Yes, yes. Very, very helpful. I well, I could say on this all day. Yeah, and human nature is—you you alluded to this. Human nature hasn't changed. Yeah. Uh, people now, what do we tend to do? We all believe that uh, we can trust in ourselves, and somehow, you know, I'll make it into heaven. I'll be good enough. Do you think people didn't imagine that two thousand years ago? Yeah. In Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure, they did. Right. Yeah. One one of my colleagues said to me years ago when I was first working on this, he said, if the Jews didn't struggle with legalism, they're the only religion in the history yes. of the world. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Great, great point. And uh, just for uh, those listening in, um, I-, I read a few years ago, Tom, uh, Piper's Counted Righteous in Christ, which I know received a lot of accolades. Um, and I, I, it's a short little book. It's meaty and it's uh, substantive. And I believe he directly interacts with N.T. Wright uh, at even some personal correspondence. Uh, sounds like, you know, very much as you have through email and conversation. And I feel foolish asking this question. Have you read that book? Could, could you recommend that book as a – Yes. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think it's a – I think it's a very good book on imputation. And I'd also recommend Brian Vicker's book. Brian Vickers has a book published by Crossway, Jesus, Blood, and Righteousness. Oh, okay. That's, that's a, it's a little technical, but it's very good. And, and then I'm sure you, you know about and many of your hearers know about, uh, there's an essay by Don Carson in, um, in a, now I'm trying to think what it's in. It's, a, it's in a book on justification, I think, edited by... Mark Husbands and maybe Daniel Trier. Okay, but but that that's nice because it's a it's a shorter essay. Yes, where mm-hmm. where he defends it. So those are my kind of three go to sources on on imputation: Piper, Vickers, and and Carson's essay. Excellent, hmm. excellent. Thank you, Tom. That's uh, very very helpful, and I hope our listeners will uh, take advantage of that. That may be learning this or. Uh, you know, realizing, oh, I got a friend that talks about that guy all the time. I'd like to learn more about that issue, and uh, we'll try to move on to some other issues now. That we, <laughs> we we could have made that the entire substance of the podcast, but I know Nathan, you had an intriguing question. Yeah, um, this is uh, changing topics just slightly here. Um, yeah. Greg and I were having a conversation uh, several weeks ago. And I've often heard it said that um, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and it's always seems to be preached in terms of the context of all time. So even if you were to look at um, people today, uh, Solomon would be the wisest guy who was ever out there. And and you know people will tend to graciously concede that Christ obviously superseded him. Um, but uh, my question would be. Is that an accurate statement, or would it be more accurate to say at the time he lived, he was the wisest person, simply because if we look at the New Testament believer, 
um, who has the full completion of the Bible in, in the knowledge that is in there, um, would we tend to quote unquote have a one up on Solomon in that regard? What, what are your thoughts on that, Tom? Yeah, Nathan, that's a, that's an excellent question. I, I think I'd say two things. First, uh, yes, implicit in your question, we, from where we stand in salvation history, we know the fulfillment of Christ. We have a, we have a key to unlocking the whole of the revelation of God that I think Solomon didn't have. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, we, we know more. I mean, First Peter says that we, we're enjoying things that angels long to see. Yes. So we, we have a perspective that, that I don't think any Old Testament saint or prophet had. So in that sense, we're wiser. But secondly, I, I mean, I don't know, was Solomon the wisest human that ever lived? But I think when the Old Testament says that, it's, it's thinking in terms of his ability to apply wisdom to a variety of situations in, in life. And there, there he may still stand beyond us. I mean, in terms of his ability to understand so many realms of knowledge and then, then apply that wisdom to the particularities of life. Of course, we have a revelational advantage. But it may be speaking of his, the ability God gave him to discern what to do in particular situations. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I guess you could say because we have the Holy Spirit and we, and Jesus Christ, we have that to a greater degree. Still, still Solomon's practical wisdom, which we see, you know, and I just preached through Ecclesiastes, and I was just so struck. Wow! Yeah, with the wisdom of that book, and so many people came up to me who are Christians and said to me, I never understood this book, and uh, man, it was so helpful. And there's a way of living, I think, the Christian life that that doesn't reckon with Ecclesiastes. That's why I wanted to preach it so much. Yes. Because it's, it's, it's such a needed perspective. And, I, and uh, this is disputed, but I, I, uh, I follow Dwayne Garrett, and I think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. Gotcha. So, that, that, um, that was going to be my very next question. <laughs> I think you, you, yeah. you, you tipped your hat there. That's, uh, that's, that's interesting, because I, I will say, Tom, I've met people, and I'm sure you have as well, that might not be uh, uh, academicians, theological giants or anything, but you know, just very wise people. Uh, they're the type my wife always says, oh, don't you wish we had so-and-so in this situation? And I always think, uh, thanks, honey. Um, <laughs> she goes, oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. And I said, no, no, I, I, I got it. But there, it's, it's uh, hard to, to quantify. There's almost an intangible element to that person who just has an, an unusual ability, um, maybe not the smartest guy in the room, but to sort of know what to do uh, and how to do it, uh, and it's it's somewhat elusive. I'm happy to say I'm not that guy. I'm thankful for uh, you know my my firm belief in plurality of eldership leading because I think we have that uh, on our team uh, in in good measure. 
You were going to jump in. Yeah, I'm also thinking about First Kings 4.32. Uh, Dr. Tom, you were talking about Solomon's practical wisdom may still exceed ours. I think there's even more. Um, the verse says Solomon composed 3,000 proverbs. That's not too bad. Yeah. Uh, and, and his songs, get this, his songs numbered 1,005. So when it says Solomon's wisdom was amazing, it might be referring to this guy wrote a thousand and five songs, yeah. which I don't know how many New Testament believers have done that. <laughs> right. So far, I'm at zero. <laughs> now, I wrote a few years ago when I met Debbie, fell in love, wrote some love songs, and I've long forgotten them. Wow, wow. I've wow. forgotten her. I've forgotten the songs. And, <laughs> and yes, because when, when we say practical wisdom, it's also, I mean, there's some indication of scientific understanding. So I think... I think Solomon had both, that practical wisdom, and then he knew so much about so many realms of life. So that sort of, uh, if we speak of it today, a renaissance a re- person, I was going to say that, you yeah. Know? yeah. Uh, and so uh, this person with encyclopedic knowledge, and yeah, you know, we know people who have encyclopedic knowledge, but they're very impractical. Yes. <laughs> but, but Solomon had both, apparently. He had encyclopedic knowledge. He was incredibly intelligent and and very good at applying it to the specific situations of life, which made him extraordinary. And yet, how many wives and concubines? Did he have? I, I was just I was just going to ask that, Steve. There because, are limits to wisdom here, uh, because that's one of the things that Greg and I also said. Um, how would you define wisdom? Because one of the things that Greg and I were were speaking about was that application of it, and we see that toward his later years, he didn't seem to have applied it all that much or all that well. Well, yeah, it, it seems that he knew what to do, and he didn't do it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's it's not enough. It's not enough to know without doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's where James helps. I mean that's that's what Proverbs says too, though. You know, obviously you you you, you the wise and understanding person, James says, is the person who lives out a godly life. And yeah, Solomon Solomon straight at the end, clearly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well Tom, that's a good transition to something I wanted to ask you about. I know Steve has a few um, really pointed First Corinthians questions, which I'll be curious to hear uh, him ask and you answer. But I have to say how encouraged I am that a New Testament scholar, uh, as you are, preached Ecclesiastes. <laughs> um, that's just <laughs> wonderful. I, I, I'm not a New Testament scholar, but uh, like most preachers, I'm more comfortable in the uh, Pauline corpus. And uh, I have uh, really, as a discipline and uh, our elder team has has talked about this. Our pattern of preaching right now, we'll, we'll do the occasional topical series, uh, but typically we're always swinging back between the New Testament and the Old Testament. That way we have a steady diet, and it's a great discipline for me. Uh, we just did First Peter, and then I went back to the book of Joshua. I ended at chapter 12, and then I picked it up in 13, and I'm moving through those uh, less than uh, exciting uh, sections of land surveys yeah, and how are geography. You doing that? I um, in. I'll tell you what, it's been a tremendous discipline for me. And uh, just knowing this is an area I don't know as well, mm-hmm. I don't do as well in, I love it. It's deepening my dependence. Um, I have come, uh, another good friend that I uh, have met in this is Dale Ralph Davis, uh, who um, I don't know if you have read his commentaries, Tom, on the. Um, uh, you know, uh, Old Testament books, uh, narrative historical books, but I, I found them to be very practical, very helpful. 
uh, in giving me a sense. Oh, this is this is a good angle for preaching. Um, just talk to me about that. Uh, it, it, do you try to preach the Old Testament um, intentionally? Uh, obviously, you had your, a purpose to choose uh, uh, Solomon's Ecclesiastes. We'll say that. And uh, I, I'm just curious how a New Testament scholar thinks about the Old Testament in terms of its use in the church today. Yeah, well, I, I think my practice is pretty much the same as yours. Yeah. I, I, not always, but typically I'll preach a New Testament book and then an Old Testament book. So I, I don't know if I remember all of them, but I preach Genesis, Exodus, mm. Samuel, First and Second Samuel, Isaiah. Wow. Um, I mean, some of the minor prophets, I remember I did Jonah. I did a series on Proverbs. I, I didn't do ev- everything in Proverbs. I sure. just did like 10 or I think I did 15 sermons in Proverbs. So, and, and, and I share the preaching actually with someone else and he's preached through Ruth and, uh, and then he just did Micah recently. Now, now he's doing first Peter. Oh, so, me. so, um, I, I, I think the key there is to, to preach the old Testament in light of the whole story. I mean, clearly, and and it's fulfillment in Christ. We want to respect the Old Testament context, but I think some one reason some people don't preach from the Old Testament is they don't know how. Yes, I mean, we don't. In one sense, right? We don't really care uh, about Israel possessing a land uh, under Joshua thousands of years ago. That what does that have to do with anything? Sure, you you've got you've got to preach that in light of the whole story of the scriptures. And of course, there's so many good books out now that help us yes. uh, preach preach in that way. Um, so, I mean, I, I tried to help in that regard in my book, The King and His Beauty, but I really like the book by Gentry and Wellam, Kingdom Through Covenant. Hmm. Um, I, I like Ed, Ed Clowney's stuff on preaching Christ, the yes. unfolding Yes. The Unfolding Mystery, that's a really helpful book. And, yes. and and in terms of Old Testament theology, my favorite Old Testament theology is actually very brief uh, by Stephen Dempster. Huh. Dominion, di, di, I think it's called Dominion and Dynasty. I'm, I'm really bad at remembering titles. but um, You're doing pretty well. I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and if not, that is dates, a great title. And names. Yes. Uh-huh. And then that's... And the nice thing about Dempster's book is that it's very, it's brief, but very meaty. Yes. And uh, so, so I, I just think a lot of preachers they need help think because sometimes they're just taught the Old Testament books as as history and not canonically. Yes, and um, well, that's that gets you know you come to Leviticus and you've got you've got to think of the fulfillment in Christ or you really don't have much to say. Yes, yes. Uh, I was going to say you didn't mention preaching Leviticus. Uh, I always uh, I always tell my church Tom. The last two books I ever plan to preach, if God gives me enough breath, and I'm not sure which order, are Leviticus and the Song of Solomon. And then the next preacher can <laughs> yeah. put the church back together again. <laughs> uh-huh. if, if I make it to my 80s and I'm still preaching, I think I might tackle those books because at Song. that point... I want to hear an 80-year-old <laughs> preach the Song of Solomon. Uh-huh. That would be that hey, would be. take my wife and me, for example. <laughs> All right. Oh my goodness, that's good. And and the one you said you never preach was Revelation. <laughs> right, right. Revelation. I might I might follow Calvin's take on that. Um, Tom, and uh, 
you know, avoid, uh, uh, it, you know, at least avoid a commentary on it. By the way, <laughs> I, I, haven't done, I, I haven't done Song of Songs and uh, Leviticus, but I did preach through Revelation. Oh, you, that was, wow. That was great fun. You did, you, wow. did you take it in large chunks? Uh, maybe I did. I'm trying to think. I probably did maybe 20 to 30 sermons. Oh no, that's mm. that's good. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> not large chunks. Wow, can I no. can I ask? Them? I I think I know this. I'm actually doing this with a men's group right now, where we're I, I'm doing a little mini eschatology to give them a lay of the land on you know uh, millennial positions and approaches to revelation uh, of the four. You know, I think the futurist, preterist, idealist, uh, and historicist. I think I know you're not that. Are you comfortable saying where you land in that? Uh, yeah, I'm 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 closest to I mean it's always I think it's always a little bit of a combination, but I'm closest to idealist. I'm, yes, I, I wouldn't you know we wouldn't agree on everything, but I'm probably closest to people like Greg Beale. Greg Beale, okay, great, yeah. excellent, excellent. Uh, I know Steve, you had a few questions you wanted to hit, and I did want to say I, I googled um, uh, Stephen G. Dempster's book. Uh, it's part of the uh, New Studies in Biblical Theology, edited by D. A. Carson. <laughs> And you are exactly right. It's called Dominion and Dynasty, A Theology of the Hebrew Bible. So you nailed it, Tom. Hmm, Nice. All right. So my opportunity, as I mentioned earlier, I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians. By the way, uh, I tremble at the prospect of preaching Old Testament books. I really do. And I don't do it often enough because of that. And what tends to happen is our other preacher, Brent, spends a lot more time in the Old Testament than I do to try and balance things out a little bit more. I'm just way more comfortable. And as you said, in Pauline. Sure. Petrine, etc., uh, the way the logic works and so yeah. on. But um, I did really enjoy preaching the book of Ecclesiastes. Oh, yeah. I would love to do it again. It's just that. such an amazing book. That's uh, right. But I'm going through 1 Corinthians, so I can just see chapter 11 and chapter 14 looming on the horizon. They're going to come up one day, and uh, you probably know immediately where I'm going then. So in chapter 11, there are women praying and prophesying, and a traditional view says, yeah, that was not in church. Because you get to chapter 14, and there's people praying and prophesying, and Paul says, as in all the churches of the saints, let your women be silent in the church. It's not permitted to them to speak, but they are to be silent. Uh, and traditionally, people said, so there you have it. Women should not pray or prophesy in church. Chapter 11 must be out of church, other places, small Bible studies out by the riverside, and so on. More recently, however, uh, D.A. Carson and others have popularized the view that uh, actually in chapter 14, women are praying and prophesying in church, and the prohibition against their speaking is limited, and it only focuses on uh, those who come to do the judging of the prophecies that were just given. Mm-hmm. Was that a good prophecy? Was it really from God, or was it not? So they're able to prophesy, but they can't be definitive judges. Um, so I'm going to come up to those chapters soon, and, and I want you to help me, would you please? Uh, wh- what is your position on that, and why? Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I I agree that chapter 11, I think from chapter 11 through 14, he's thinking of the church gathering and corporate worship. Mm -hmm. I mean, the very next passage in chapter 11, after he speaks of women's adornment, is the Lord's Supper. Yes. Yes. So, so, you know, some people will say, well, chapter, the first, the verses on women are about the church meeting in homes, but that's that's where the church met in homes. So, <laughs> yeah. so to so to argue that it's a private meeting apart from a corporate meeting, I think is pretty unlikely. Of course, we, you know, when we're talking like this, we're talking about a lot of conclusions. But I, 
so I take it that women can pray and prophesy in the assembly that that chapter 14 isn't an absolute prohibition. Mm -hmm. However, you know, one thing leads to another. I am, when it comes to prophecy, I'm a cessationist. Mm -hmm. So Uh I I think the church is built on the foundation, Ephesians 2.20, of the apostles and prophets, I Wayne Wayne Grudem is a dear friend of mine. We we get together socially uh, at least once a year. But I don't agree with Wayne that New Testament prophecy is is mixed with uh, air. Mm-hmm. And so I I don't think there are prophets today. So I understand the prophecy to be what's the equivalent in our corporate gatherings. I think that means that women can read scripture publicly. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that they can pray in the public assembly and we, we have them do that at Clifton. We'll have we'll have a woman lead in prayer. We do also. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, we, we have women read scripture, but Yep, same here. But but we don't have women preach, um, given our understanding of first Timothy two. Yes. I first Corinthians fourteen I, I think Carson's view of the judging of prophecies is perhaps that's the right view. We end up at the same place in terms of what we do when we gather together. I think it's more likely, however, that the principle in that passage is women must submit. How were they not submitting? Carson says they weren't submitting because they were judging the prophecies. I think it's a little more likely that they weren't submitting because they were asking their demeanor in the worship service as they were asking challenging questions in the service that was um, really calling into question the authority of what was going on. Hmm, so that it, so that it's not an absolute prohibition given chapter 11, but Paul's looking at a particular situation, something that's happening, but he gives the principle, remember women need to submit uh, to, to, the, to the leadership of the church. And that's so that they're disrupting the worship service in some way. But it's hard to be sure Carson may be right. I mean, it's the same principle, right, that, that, that's, that the women in the church need to be submissive to the male leadership. That I think it may be Carson's view, it may be mine. It ends up pretty much at the same place. Since, since I don't, you know, Carson and I differ here because Carson seems to hold Grudem's view of prophecies. So yes. uh, th- there's no place in our church for judging of prophecies because we don't think there are prophets today. Yes. Mm-hmm. So if you are preaching through 1 Corinthians, imagine you have, <laughs> uh, is it possible that when you get to 11 and 14 and these issues, you would you would just present all views, put them on the table, say he, these are good and responsible people, they have a high view of Scripture, these guys go that way, these guys go that way, you all get to take your pick. Here's my view. Uh. Sometimes I approach ah. things that way. What do you yeah, think yeah. of that? Well, I would say that I would say that between Carson's view and mine in fourteen. Yeah. Yes. But then but then I want to say to the church, because we have people come in and they say, oh, Wow, are you guys liberal? I saw you have a woman praying. <laughs> so I wanna say very clearly, no, I mean, here's why. Here's why we do it this way. Because this is how we understand chapter eleven, verses two through sixteen. Here so I'd want to apply that and say this is why we do what we do. Good. That's a good opportunity for me. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We, 
we understand we understand churches that don't follow us on this that are that love God's word and we respect and honor them. But but I want you to understand why we do what we do. So excellent, excellent. Just out of curiosity, Greg, in Christ Fellowship Church, do you guys have women scripture readers? Women pray? Um, generally, no. And I would admit that is uh, probably a bit more pragmatic. Uh, it's interesting, Steve, without going into too much, you know, our churches have a little history on this subject. Yes. Years back when we were going to do a joint prayer meeting, you <laughs> remember you guys were in a different place yes. at that point. And we had and, to kill it, didn't we? Yes. Yeah. But that was a pragmatic approach because I remember mm-hmm. it allowed you to address the issue. Um, and, and Tom, just so you know, that was a, a thought of a combined prayer meeting. Uh, where, of course, in that setting, pretty casual, where people just would stand up and pray, uh, men and women, of course, would do that. In our formal services here on Sunday morning, um, I would say occasionally a member of the praise team, that is a woman, mm-hmm. has read a scripture. But that is, you you know, Nathan, I mean, that's pretty rare. Yeah. That's uh-huh. pretty rare. So we've uh, had... Um, that's only been if she's been leading the service or something like that. Typically, yeah. right. Yeah. Typically, if she's yeah. sort of the front vocalist or something, she might read a scripture. But we have a pastoral prayer right. uh, every week, a uh, little throwback to my PCA days. And that's that's more a function because it's either me or one of the elders, yeah. typically, yeah. that prays. And yeah. because we're you know complementarian and they're all men... Um, but um, one of the challenges we have, and uh, well, this could open up a whole new subject, maybe we part two it sometime, is the issue of how do we as a complementarian church tell women there's more to do here than just uh, yes. cook for yes. big church events Making cookies in and, the kitchen. and work in the nursery. Uh-huh. We've been asked that pointedly, and I must admit, we have a hard time giving an answer. And it's an issue that our elders are talking about. And sometimes – now, one of the guys who runs – I'm going to say it's Al Myers who listens <laughs> yeah, to this podcast. Al. Al is in charge of ushers. And we one time approached him about, hey, Al, can you get some women that mm-hmm. usher? And I think I'm representing Al's take on that. Al doesn't have a theological take on that. He has a cultural take on that because I'm not going to ask women to stand up because Al's uh-huh. from the perspective – a man should always open a door for a lady. Uh-huh. A man should always serve a lady. Should you know defer to the ladies first when we have food. Let the ladies get served first. He's very gentlemanly in that respect. So Al does such a good job. We've never pushed it. So we don't even have women that usher. Um, we don't have women that usher. We don't have women that pray. And this podcast is actually making me think about these. Well, and, and in all fairness too, yeah. because you and I have talked about this, Greg. Um, you know, and and I've said this before. I you know I'm more egalitarian yep. when it comes to um, things like that. Yep. Um, but we don't have deacons in the church. No. And you and I have talked about the fact that if we did, we would have deacons and deaconesses yes. serving. But we just don't have that function right now right. Uh, because of the state the church is in at this point. Yeah, and it's we, we've said in our elder meetings that's largely happening through community groups. Yeah. We do have men and women, like the group I'm in, Mark and Cynthia is the couple. Uh, they... Uh, they, they share a leading role yeah. uh, in that group. Uh, but anyway, I, I'm curious, Tom, your thoughts on this. Is, it sounds like this is something your church has intentionally wrestled with. Yeah, well, we have uh, – I don't know. I mean, we don't have any prohibition to women ushers. I don't, I don't know if we do, but we, women serve communion, and that was hard for some people at first. Hmm. And we just said, you know what? We're not sacramentalists. Right. Um, Serving communion—that's that's a service. That's not a leadership thing, yes. right? Since and 
And we have, we actually have a very vital women's ministry. We have a women's ministry committee. They're always in touch with us as elders. They don't want to exceed their authority. But we have another thing that's very helpful. We have uh, uh, women's Bible studies going on, usually two or three, which are led and taught by women. We have a women's retreat. Um, so we have a very vital, we, we have women deacons. So, you know, they, so we have, and, but the way our deacons work, for example, we have a deacon of hospitality. Well, that's a woman, you know? Yes. Yes. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, we have, we have deacons of greeting and usually that's a couple. Um, but the way we work our deacons, we have deacons of sound, deacons of finance, but we don't have any problem with a woman in such serving positions. So we are, our, our our stance is we want to follow whatever the scripture says, and we want to give women as much freedom as the scriptures give, and we want to draw boundaries where the scriptures draw them. Naturally, people understand some of these things differently. I mean, women deacons, there's two verses. <laughs> right, right. You know, right. Romans and they're debated. And Timothy 3.11, so that's a, it's impossible really to prove your view uh, for a number of reasons. I think Paul is talking about women deacons there but that's keenly debated sure yes. sure well great. we're going to um thank you so much tom for joining us um we we do want to be aware of your time and um so we are going to go ahead and wrap up now but it has been such a pleasure having you on and really just getting your wisdom and insight into uh into all these topics that we've uh we've kind of jumped around on today so thank you so much for that well, uh, Nathan, Steve, and Greg, it's been great to be with you. I've really enjoyed it. We have, too. Yes, yeah. thank you. All right, we're going to go ahead and sign off now. And, uh, gentlemen, we just rocked the Casper. Rocked it. These go to 11.